After all, I believe in the First Amendment, not just because my good friend Jimmy Madison wrote it. I get that age is completely reasonable issue. It's in everybody's mind. And everyone, by everyone, I mean the New York Times. <laughs> Call me old. I call it being seasoned. You say I'm ancient. I say I'm wise. You say I'm over the hill. Don Lemon would say that's a man of his prime. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 29 of The Middle Unplugged. I'm Anthony Weiner. So I hear President Biden is old. Did you hear about this? And he says some gaffy stuff on the regular. And when he does those long, tense walks to Marine One, it looks like he might fall over at any moment. Look, the dude is 80. He was born in 1942, for Christ's sakes. He's already the oldest president. It's going to be the oldest one. You've heard it all. And if you listen to conservative radio or you listen to 77 WABC or watch Fox News, you've seen all about it. Every last gaff, every last cringy moment. And for nearly all Republicans, and let's face it, a whole bunch of Democrats, this age thing is a real liability. But if you're like a lot of people who see this as the reason why he will lose the election, I think you're probably wrong. With a big caveat that something could happen to make him literally unable to stand for re-election or to take office, his age is probably going to recede as the dominant issue. And there are some candidates out there who are Nikki Haley, for one, who are staking their entire campaign on this issue. And I know it's a good one and it's a fun one. But to be clear, unlike other things on a campaign that are dependent on circumstances, we know with absolute certainty that this will remain a thing that people will talk about. He ain't getting any younger. But the way this campaign is shaping up, and by that I mean campaign 24, it is going to be fought on some very unusual terrain. Usually campaigns for re-election are framed as, do we fire this guy and hire this other guy? So it becomes the incumbent saying, hey, I wasn't so bad and the other guy is really not ready or he's scary or whatever. In this typical race, the incumbent is helped out by the primaries in the other party, which forced the challenger to go to the extremes in order to win those primaries and thus make it easier to make the scary, not ready case about the challenger. But next year, odds are, we will be in the full throes of an unprecedented vote uh, choice for voters. You'll have two guys who are viewed as incumbents in many ways. This is a much clearer choice than, view, than voters usually have. Which four years were better? Which four years do I want more of? Yes, for the purposes of this analysis, I am assuming the status quo. I'm assuming that Trump is the nominee and Biden is the nominee. Um, I won't wear you out with the polling, but suffice it to say that both are unpopular in their country, but popular enough in their party. For all the predictors that pollsters and regular humans use when trying to guess how an election will play out, none is more powerful, however, than how a voter behaved in the past when offered the exact same choice. And that's for a couple of reasons. You know, people don't like to admit that they were wrong. They grow attached to the idea that they're in a party. Years ago, 
something was done, a study was done, something on the foot in the door technique was when the American Cancer Society went out and went door to door, except instead of having people go out and ask for donations, they had half of their crew go out and just say, are you interested in fighting cancer? And then they would just give them a little pin to wear. And then they went back and called those people and to see how likely they were to donate. And what they found out is that once they were wearing that pin, they were five times more likely to donate when called and asked for a contribution. It's called the foot in the door technique. So we know that when people have already cast a vote for a candidate, they're already predisposed to vote for them again. And that's even doubly so when they're offered the same choice a second time. But simply put, by looking at Biden v. Trump, you can make some educated guesses um, about, you know, that, that you don't have about Biden v. DeSantis. But you have quite a few variables. But looking at Biden v. Trump, you can tell a great deal about how Biden v. Trump, too, will go. I guess that's the summary of what I'm trying to say. So what do voters who really don't like each other? Not that's, that's not right. Voters who really don't like either of them, what do they do? I guess come to think of it, it really is voters who don't like each other nowadays. But, you know, you take these people who they all know about the age thing. They know about the, what do you call them, the Trump entanglements with the law. What do they do? How, what do these voters who don't like either one of these guys, where do they wind up going? Now, sure, some of them may stay home. But we got a glimpse in a recent Wall Street Journal poll that was conducted by two pollsters, one from a Democratic firm and the other from a Republican one. And since it was 1,500 registered voters, which is a lot, the crosstabs are pretty informative. And what happens is if you – well, we frequently focus on the bottom line question, who you're going to vote for. What frequently political experts and pollsters are looking at is subdivisions, what people in a different race might do in a different part of the country might do in a different – different leanings, and then they look combined. If they answered yes to this question and no to that question, how do they go? That's called a crosstab. If you only do 300 or 400 people, the crosstabs are 10 or 11 people in some cases, and you can't really draw much conclusion. But when you're 1,500 registered voters, you can. And so what they asked these folks was an interesting question. They asked them, do you like Mr. Biden? They said no. They asked them, do you like Mr. Trump? They said no. And that's a lot of people. And then what they did is they asked people who disapproved of both men um, we disapprove of both men who have handled the – how they asked them – I guess here's the question. Let's make it easier. For voters who disapproved of both men, how they've handled the office of presidency, how would they choose – how would they vote? And by a very big margin, 54 to 15, they were leaning towards Biden. So what does handled the office of the presidency mean? Well, probably different things to different people, but it suggests that this group really, really prefers Biden. So the contours of the campaign on the Biden side seem actually to be sort of quaint. You talk about stuff that you did. You compare records just like they did back in the old days. And he has done a lot. And with unprecedentedly narrow margins in the House and in the Senate, he has succeeded in doing something that's almost novel nowadays. He's made laws. The bipartisan infrastructure law, the American Rescue Plan the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, the Gun, uh, the gun co the Control Act. Um, I don't know what they actually call that one. And all, to, all the while managing to strengthen and even grow NATO, oversee a dramatic weakening of one of our big global enemies who had literally waged war on us and our society since 
2016. I mean, look, I printed out a whole bunch of stuff here. I won't read all of it, but I had forgotten some of the stuff. So the Inflation Reduction Act, 15% corporate minimum tax, very popular. A 1% excise tax on stock buybacks. People increasingly are understanding that corporations are not investing their loose cash in reducing prices or hiring more people. That was in that act. The Inflation Reduction Act also had Medicare negotiating for lower prices, enormously popular. Investing money so the IRS can uh, collect more money from rich people, a little less popular, but still very popular. Extend the the Affordable Care Act. Um, uh, Tax credits to offset energy costs. That was in the Inflation Reduction Act. Back at the very beginning of of the administration, you had that recovery plan. And we forget that, you know, we had unemployment at 6.1% when that passed. It's 3.4% now. Um, You've got uh, health care premiums for 13 million Americans that were lowered uh, by $800 or more. You had emergency disaster loans to people for over to, uh, um, that went out for over two, of, of over two million dollars to different businesses. One hundred thousand restaurants out in America wound up getting one of these loans. They reduced the child poverty rate to the lowest it had been in American history. Child poverty cut in half to only five point four percent. Not to mention the fact that two hundred thirty million Americans were fully vaccinated. That's a very popular thing. Not to not to to diminish the RFKs of the world and the anti-vaxxers of the world, enormously popular. Um, looking through here, as crime becomes a bigger issue, 70% of all cities got money for public safety. So Alito, Ohio, just picking a city off my notes here, 100 new officers, $10 billion for, and that's just the recovery plan. Um, the infrastructure deal, $55 billion to expand clean drinking water, $110 billion to repair roads and bridges, $65 billion for high-speed internet. I mean, for goodness sakes, 24,000 new buses, 5,000 rare cars, 200 um, charging stations. Anyway, that's the bipartisan infrastructure bill. They, picked, they passed this Chips and Science Act, another very popular thing. It wound up passing it with bipartisan support that basically says we can't be at the short end of the computer chip industry, invested $52.5 billion, including almost $40 billion for manufacturing incentives, $13 billion for R&D. All of this to encourage uh, all of these incentives, which had to be a U.S. manufacturer to take advantage of. Again, a very, very popular thing. And then the gun safety law, which passed with bipartisan support, um, millions of dollars for crisis intervention, Closed the boyfriend loophole, which barred individuals convicted domestic violence against their spouses from getting guns. Um, I mean, it didn't go far enough. There's still all kinds of more popular things to do, but at least they can say they did something. And all of this, while being on the popular side of some things that the court may ultimately stop, the student debt forgiveness plan, which I think the court may strike down. But again, even that, you've got Biden on the popular side of. And Biden is on the popular side of something the court has already ended, which is a constitutionally protected right to abortion. And it's look, I'm not going to kid you. This is not to say that the Biden record has all been milk and honey and he's immune to attack. Immigration is a big a big liability. This week, it became an even bigger one with Title 42 being lifted. Inflation is still becoming a tougher and tougher nut to crack. And it might be and probably is contributing to bank failures. Crime, although it's trending down, we'll talk a little bit more about that in listener mail, is still a liability. The exit from Afghanistan was a disaster, 
I mean, he can deflect some blame to the fact that it was a Trump plan that he was executing, but still, that was bad. Um, it is not like there's nothing. I mean, there are there are plenty of things that he has out there that he's he's vulnerable for. And this isn't a one-way fight. I mean, Trump will talk about his tax cuts. He'll talk about his wall, his, his wall thing, maybe how amazing the economy was way back then before COVID. But none of those three is a silver bullet either for Donald Trump. The tax cuts have been mentioned a lot recently, but in the context of the exploding debt, this whole building of the wall seems to be a very confusing thing to many voters. Because if we built the wall, then why do we have all these problems? If um, and, and all that amazing economic news under Trump? Well, the jobs data actually shows now that Biden, um, Biden job creation has actually been more than any time during the Trump administration. And the one final thing, which we started with the age issue. If Trump wants to bring up the age issue, I'm not sure it would work. All Biden has to do is remind people that his opponent was born, uh, was born when? In, I guess it was the Truman administration. Uh, he's 77. And that Trump, too, seems to have a memory problem. I think he can point to the over 200 times he answered some version of, I do not recall in all those investigations into his lawbreaking. And we'll be right back with Listener Mail. So welcome back to The Middle Unplugged. So uh, in The Middle, a radio show that I do on Saturdays at 2 o'clock on 77 WABC, um, we have plenty of chances to get feedback. Uh, By the way, that can be downloaded as a podcast on the Red Apple Podcast Network as well. But the way we get feedback on the radio is people call in, And they give me a piece of their mind or they ask a question. I wanted to try to figure out a way to do that here on the show. And so we had this idea of doing listener mail. We get um, sometimes tweets at at Rep Wiener, Anthony D. Wiener on Facebook, WienerWABC at gmail.com. But increasingly, I am finding myself drawn to the idea of listening to things that other hosts say on the radio here at 77 WABC Talk Radio on our 50,000-watt Clear Channel AM radio station, also on WABCradio.com. And I listen to what they say, and I sometimes I'll hear something, and I'll say, well, that's not right. Or I'll hear something said in the form of a rhetorical question, and I'll clap back at it and maybe treat that as the listener mail. And I'm kind of enjoying that. We've done that now for a couple of weeks. We do with Steve Moore talking about um, the 90% tax rate. And this week, I heard something on our most popular show, and I think you'll recognize this voice. No, no, my friend, my friend, it's not a national issue. It is a blue state issue. Every one of those cities and states you just mentioned, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, what do they all have in common? Democrat mayors, Democrat governors. That's what it is. It's not a national issue because Ron DeSantis doesn't have that in Florida. Yep, that's right. That was Sid Rosenberg, Sid and Friends in the Morning, every morning from 6 to 10. Um, He gets enormous ratings and one of the most popular talk show here in New York City. And I listen to it every morning. I encourage you to also. But he makes an insistent point here that we frequently hear made by conservatives when it comes to crime. And that is this whole idea that New York is a high crime area and that Democratic cities are high crime cities. Um, And this was talked about a lot. Well, it's talked about a lot on conservative TV and radio and Fox News and everything else. And it was said a lot um, around the Alvid Bragg indictment of Donald Trump. Let's just try to put this out there. Um, First of all, the way to look at crime is not to say the net number of crimes that are committed. Obviously, in a city of 8.2 million people like New York City is, you're going to have more net crime. 
The question is, are you safer? Meaning if you live in a city of 100 people and you only have 10 murders each year, um, that may sound great, but that's one-tenth of your population and your odds of being the next victim, <laughs> frankly, are about, um, you know, my mom, the math teacher, would probably tell you what it would be, uh, but uh, let's round it out at one in 10. So the the way to compare it is is one in, a, you know, instances of crime in 1,000 or more realistically, instances of crime in 100,000. Your, your chances of being um, victim of a crime in most places in the United States of America is very low, and it's certainly very, very low when it comes to New York City. Um, New York recorded 488 homicides in 2021, which was an increase from previous years, and it, it, is, um, it, 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 was, it is and was a cause for concern. But they dropped again in 2022 down to 438. To give you some context, when Rudy Giuliani came in as mayor, it was over 2,000. Now, why do we look at murders? We look at murders because they are the one thing that you can compare without any question from city to city, from place to place, because you've quite literally got a victim. You don't have to be worried that someone didn't take down a local mugging and report it correctly or that they decided not to report it at all. But the way that these crime statistics are done is there are the seven index crimes that the FBI collects data from. And um, then they, they add them all up. And the way it works out is they look at what are the amount of crimes per 100,000 residents. So generally speaking, you compare big city to big city. And by that standard and any other, um, New York City is one of the safest large cities in America. The safest large city, meaning the fewest index crimes um, per 100,000 residents for any city that's over 300,000. Honolulu, Hawaii is number one. Virginia Beach, Virginia, number two. Henderson, Nevada, number three. El Paso, Texas is number four. New York City is the fifth safest city in the entire country. Now, if you want to take a look at the other list, the most dangerous cities in America... Um, places like St. Louis, Missouri, Mobile, Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama, those are the top three. Baltimore, Maryland, number four. Memphis, Tennessee, number five. Detroit, Michigan, number six. But what about this idea that Sid was talking about there, that these are Democratic-led um, uh, led cities? Well, many of the Republican-led cities have a much higher crime rate than New York City during the same year. Oklahoma City, for example, had 11.92 murders uh, per 100,000 people. That's double what New York City had. 627 violent crimes um, and 3,716 violent crimes for every 100,000 residences. All of those are at the, the violent crimes is double. The property crimes is four times as much as New York City, Oklahoma City, led by a Republican. Miami, 10.6 murders. Again, double what New York City is. 615 violent crimes per 100,000 residents, um, or just the simplest way to say it is per capita. Um, uh, or apples to apples per capita, and uh, 615 for Miami, 456 for uh, uh, New York City, 3,000 property crimes, and in New York City, it was 757. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, and let me just make one other point. I said, well, well, some of those play, you know, they have uh, Democratic mayors. The real place to look is who the governor. I mean, we've got to at least look who the governor is, because one of the reasons why the governor is the thing that you should look at and not necessarily the city is who makes criminal law in the states, the state, usually not the city. New York City does not make its own criminal law. The state of uh, Albany does. So we have Democrats at both the the. Um, the federal, the state level and the city level, we have some very dangerous cities in New York State. There's no doubt about it. Rochester's one. Buffalo is one. Much more dangerous than New York City. But if you're going to take a look at St. Louis, Missouri, Republican governor. Mobile, Alabama, Republican governor. Birmingham, Alabama, Republican governor. Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm reading from the, the most dangerous cities in the United States. Memphis, Tennessee, Republican governor. Um, Cleveland, Ohio, Republican governor. So... I know it's a rhetorical thing. You can do some cherry picking, but if you're going to do the cherry picking, you shouldn't include New York City on your list um, because simply because everything is under a microphone in New York City and we walk the streets of New York City does not change the t- statistical fact that New York City remains a safe place. And let me make one other point. Um, Sid in his in that show, and he was talking to Arthur Idala, by the way, um, Sid in his show made the point, I don't care about other places. I only care the place that I am. That's exactly right. Uh, If you feel unsafe, you're unsafe. You're not going to persuade people that they're not. Um, But there is a certain amount of echo chamber that goes on in New York City that we, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. I talked about this on the radio this weekend. It doesn't change the fact that, um, and and oh, by the way, and Eric Adams kind of got roughed up early on by saying, hey, we're still a safe city. Um, and now that 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 crime is dramatically dropped in the subways, it doesn't change the fact that a horrible thing that happened in the subways this past week does not dominate the news. But if we're going to be statistically correct and we're going to not want to appear on my you know, questions of the week being um, uh, uh, being corrected, you really have no way to include New York City as one of the most dangerous cities anywhere. It is a safe city and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say that that is the result of excellent policing, having a lot of police officers. We have 34,000 some odd police officers with the second largest, you know, I think we're the second largest um, military or paramilitary organization in the, in, the, uh, in, in the country, second only to the actual military. I think we're three times the size of the FBI. Also, I think there's been generally a, a, an understanding on the, on the part of voters that they want um, to hire and keep an active police force. Uh, but all of those things being said, it doesn't change the fact that when someone stands up and says, oh, it's Democratic cities and Democratic mayors, it's all different kinds. Uh, that uh, crime is a difficult thing to figure out why it happens. There is a multi, multi-level different ways that you can interpret it, generally speaking. Crime occurs in low-income areas where there are low-income areas where there are low-income people around other low-income people, and that's that's a general that's a general rule. How you stop it is um, is is a tougher question. It involves 
drug use. It involves drug interdiction. It involves um, envi- um, environmental things. It involves economic things. It's complicated. But New York City, thankfully, is one of the safest big cities in the country. If you'd like to have a question answered, you can reach out to me on any of the ways that I described earlier. Um, also, I encourage you that if you like what you've heard here on The Middle Unplugged, that you uh, subscribe, download, share it with someone else. We're here every week. At this episode, uh, usually this this podcast usually drops Wednesday morning. And um, with that, I look forward to uh, joining you again next week. And I also encourage you to visit the Red Apple Podcast Network, where you can download and subscribe to podcasts from uh, almost all the talent here at 77 WABC and well, a bunch of people that just do podcasts. They're all great in their own way, and I encourage you to check in. Thank you so much for joining me. And this marks the end of The Middle Unplugged.